This podcast is a production of Open Pediatrics, an open access online community of healthcare professionals sharing best practices from around the world. Visit openpediatrics.org for more. Welcome to the World Shared Practice Forum on Open Pediatrics. This is our podcast series. I'm Dr. Jeff Burns, Chief of Critical Care at Boston Children's Hospital and Professor at Harvard Medical School. We are very pleased to have with us today, Dr. Ravi Kamani. Dr. Kamani is the Vice Chair of Research at the Department of Anesthesiology and Critical Care at the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, where he's also an attending physician in the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit. Dr. Kamani is also a Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Southern California School of Medicine. Ravi, welcome back to Open Pediatrics. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's February 1st as we're recording this, and in the new issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine is a special article. The February issue of Pediatric Critical Care Medicine has the special article entitled Executive Summary of the Second International Guidelines for the Diagnosis and Management of Pediatric Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, the PALIC-2 Guidelines. Dr. Kamani, you were involved as the senior author in the original guidelines, and now you are the senior author of these revised PALIC-2 guidelines. What's new in these guidelines that we should know about, and what was the basis for the change? Thanks, thanks, Jeff. Really, again, it's a pleasure to be here. So the PALIC-2 process was ongoing over the last three years or so, and really our focus was to update recommendations from the last PALIC process, which was published now in 2015, because there was a wealth of new data that had accumulated. In fact, the speed at which we have been doing research in pediatric ARDS has really sped up over the last five to seven years since publication of PALIC-1. And so we felt it was really time to update it and move to PALIC-2 to look at both new topic areas as well as to update the recommendations recommendations in many of the existing areas. So I'd say there were a lot of important changes. The first, I would say, surrounds the methodology, the methodology that we use for PALIC-2, which certainly built off of PALIC-1's methods. But since publication of PALIC-1, there's become a little bit more of a standard process for clinical practice guidelines that has been recommended by the Institute of Medicine. And we tried to stay true to that process as much as we could. The purpose being that it should be that anybody that then follows this process does the systematic reviews in each of the areas that have been identified should generate similar recommendations. So it's open and transparent process. And so we've divided our recommendations rather than the original PALIC where there was a list of all recommendations, 140 some recommendations that all seem to have the same weight into different types of statements for PALIC 2. There are the clinical recommendations and those recommendations went through a very rigorous process. The grade framework was used to evaluate the certainty of evidence in each of the areas and generate either a strong or a weak recommendation about how we should change or what we should do in our clinical practice. And then that was accompanied by some other types of statements, like good practice statements, which there may not be direct evidence for that therapy, but it's obvious that implementing the therapy would result in a net positive benefit. Research statements were used in areas where after doing the literature review, there was no clear evidence on one side or the other that would inform a clinical recommendation. And so these were focused, therefore, on what should we do next in terms of research priorities, where the use of those therapies really lies in the research domain still. And then there were policy statements that were targeted a little bit more towards what we should be doing as institutions or as hospitals for implementation of some of the recommendations, as an example. And then the last section included definition statements. And definition statements were unique to just the new PARDS definition. And I would say, in fact, that's another area of change that we made is in that new PARDS definition. 
So can we pick it up from there? Obviously, the most helpful and critical portion of the guidelines, in my view, and I suspect many agree, is the definition. What's different in the definition from the 2015 guidelines and why? There are some key changes to the definition. Our target here was not to revamp everything, right? And in fact, with the 2015 definition, there were quite a few changes as compared to the Berlin definition. This was our first ever pediatric definition in 2015. The approach that we took this time was what parts of the definition are working well and what parts of the definition are not working well. And it was built off of the use of the definition. So the definition subgroup really looked at all the published articles that have come out in the last five years since the original PALIC was published, evaluating the different elements or components of the definition. And in fact, there were several studies that had tested various different components of the definition. And we identified a few areas that we felt were lacking in the initial definition that needed further clarification. Now, many of the elements are the same, right? So if we look at age, timing, origin of edema, and chest imaging, those have all stayed the same. There have been no major changes with the new definition as compared to the old one. The age issue was interesting, and there is been a push because there's a new neonatal definition of ARDS called neonatal ARDS or NARDS. And then on the top end, we have the Berlin definition. So there's been a little confusion in the literature about which one you should use. And so we tried to be a little bit more explicit with this in our recommendation, saying that for pediatric patients less than 18 years of age, certainly, and that do not have perinatal related lung disease, we should be using the PALIC-2 definition. And for children that fall outside of those age ranges that we may take care of still in our pediatric intensive care units, it would be appropriate for us to use the PALIC definition in those patients. But if practitioners felt more comfortable using the Berlin definition on the upper end or the neonatal definition on the lower end, then that would also be appropriate. But the target really in the not preterm neonate to 18 years of age should all use PALIC too. Now, the real major changes came in this concept of possible PARDS and in the oxygenation criteria. And Robbie, if I could just for a moment, OI, you mean, of course, mean airway pressure in centimeters of water times the FiO2 divided by the PaO2. And when you're referring to OSI, you, of course, mean mean airway pressure times FiO2, but this time divided by the SpO2. Is that correct? That's correct. Yep. I'll start with the oxygenation criteria. So there has not been a change in the use of oxygenation index. We continue to recommend the use of oxygenation index or oxygen saturation index for those that are on invasive mechanical ventilation. And then those that are on non-invasive ventilation with an oronasal mask, so covering the nose and the mouth, then we recommend either the PF ratio or the SF ratio. But one of the changes is that we had originally recommended stratifying severity initially, right when you make the PARDS diagnosis. And there's been a fair amount of literature that's emerged that we're better at that risk stratification if we wait a little while. If we wait up to four or six hours, you get more accuracy in identifying really who is the severe patient as compared to who is the mild or moderate patient. Because there are many patients that change that severity within that first few hours based upon lung recruitment strategies, for example, or just stabilization after they're intubated. So the stratification occurs four hours later is what our recommendation is. And here we've divided it into more simple groups. We have a severe group for those that are invasively ventilated, which stays with the oxygenation index above 16. Or if you don't have an arterial line, then you use the oxygen saturation index, which is above 12. Here we rounded, used to be 12.3, we rounded to 12 to just make it easier for people to remember. And then the other group, we had previously done mild and moderate, and now we've lumped those together into mild slash moderate. And the reason is, is that in the epidemiologic studies that we had seen published since, you know, the original PALIC, is that there's very little discrimination 
combination of mortality or outcome in the mild versus the moderate patients. There's a big step up in mortality risk that occurs for the severe patients. Now, it may be that if you look at other metrics like length of ventilation, for example, there might be a bit of a difference between a mild and a moderate patient. But for simplicity, we felt it important to break this really into two groups rather than three, since the outcomes seem to be most closely tied, mild and moderate together and severe different. We also added severity stratification for non-invasive ventilation. So for those similarly on NIV, there's a severe NIV PARDS, those with a PF ratio less than 100 or an SF ratio less than 150, or the mild, moderate NIV-related PARDS. And this was intentional because we certainly see that those patients with severe NIV PARDS are probably different, and we should be thinking about those patients differently, which becomes reflected, as you'll see in some of our recommendations later about non-invasive ventilation. The last area I just want to mention with the definition is we created this concept of possible parts. And this is to account for changes in our clinical practice that have really occurred over the last five to seven years, especially with the use of nasal only modes of ventilation, things like nasal NIV or more relevantly probably is high flow nasal cannula. And we recognize that there are many patients that are on high flow nasal cannula at relatively high flow rates and high amounts of FiO2 that probably have ARDS, but we just haven't been able to diagnose that because our diagnosis required them to have oronasal interface. And recognizing that, in fact, they have ARDS may make us think a little bit differently about that patient. Think about all of the therapies that we should be applying to ARDS patients and the risks that come with ARDS patients. And so we've afforded the possibility of diagnosing possible ARDS in patients that are on high flow nasal cannula with flow rates that are above one and a half liters per kilo per minute or above 30 liters as the upper limit of the cap. And then you simply apply the SF or the PF ratio. And if their SF ratio is less than 250 using the FiO2 that's dialed in on the blender or their PF ratio is less than 300 if you have an arterial line, then they would meet that criteria for possible parts. The other possibility there is in resource-limited settings if they don't have a chest X-ray. In many resource-limited settings, the chest X-ray is a limiting factor, but there are many patients in these resource-limited settings that meet all these other criteria, but they just don't have the availability to do an X-ray. And if that's the case, they could also fall into this possible parts category. Well, I must say, I really appreciate the practicality of these guidelines. I think it's terrific that you've split out invasive, non-invasive, and now even high flow, because as you're obviously recognizing, and as all practitioners know, we have patients on high flow who have serious lung injury. And prior to this, we'd have no way to frame and put into context. And certainly with non-invasive ventilation in pediatrics, it's evident to all of us that they have significant lung injury or on the continuum of significant lung injury. So that's a real practical advance. But could I go back to your comment? You mentioned that there were further recommendations as you split out invasive mechanical ventilation parts from non-invasive ventilation parts. What are the other recommendations regarding non-invasive ventilation parts that we should know about? Thanks, Jeff. So this was a big focus, this area on non-invasive ventilation, because it, as you just alluded to, really there's been a huge increase in the number of patients that we are currently taking care of on non-invasive ventilation that likely have the physiology of PARDS. And we are increasingly beginning to recognize that we have to pay a lot of attention to those patients. Those patients are high risk, you know, as was evident from some of the previous studies, the epidemiologic studies, including, for example, the PARDI study, which was an observational study in pediatric ARDS from using the PALIC-20 2015 guidelines, 50% of pediatric patients that meet criteria for NIV parts go on to get intubated. 
And those that are on the severe spectrum that have the more severe hypoxemia with the lower PF ratios have even higher rates of intubation. And when those patients get intubated, their mortality rates are high. They're as high as the severe PARDS patients' mortality rates. So this was one of the real impetuses to separate the severe NIV PARDS patient from the less severe NIV PARDS patient. And so, in fact, the recommendations about the use of NIV are to pay a lot of attention to that severity. So we are certainly certainly acknowledging that we should be trying non-invasive ventilation in some of these patients, and we afford for that, but we make it a point that this is a time-limited trial. So what becomes really important is that if you apply NIV to a pediatric patient that seems to have PARDS, that you're constantly monitoring that patient and looking for signs of improvement. And if that patient does not show signs of improvement, physiologic stability, improvement in their respiratory rate, heart rate, oxygenation markers, work of breathing, for example, then that patient should be escalated quickly to be intubated. So a time-limited trial of NIV is certainly recommended, but that you have a clear limit on what that is. And we put a six-hour limit in there just as rough guidance, but it may be that some of these patients need to have that done sooner. And in fact, in the severe patients, our recommendation is really only try a one-hour trial of non-invasive ventilation to say, do they improve dramatically or not? If they improve dramatically, you can continue them on non-invasive ventilation. If they do not improve dramatically, then our recommendation would be to escalate those patients more quickly to intubation. Other risks are those patients that have more than single organ failure. So if they have severe hypoxemia, that would be a clear indication to move more quickly towards intubation. Or if they have more than one organ dysfunction would be another indication to move more quickly towards intubation. Now, another change in the NIV area relates to those that are immune suppressed. And in the previous PALIC recommendations, in fact, one of the recommendations was that NIV might need to be thought of differently for those patients that are immune suppressed compared to those that are not, that we might tolerate those patients being on NIV a little bit longer, those that had a bone marrow transplant, for example. And now the recommendations that we flip them in the other way, saying, you know, do not treat the immune suppressed patient differently because there's a growing amount of observational data that's coming out now that patients that are immune suppressed that are exposed to prolonged periods of non-invasive ventilation or high-flow nasal cannula before intubation, in fact, have worse outcomes. And there's a lot of confounders in there related to decisions around intubation. Nevertheless, the signal seems to be pretty consistent. And so I wanted to make it clear that this applies also to patients that are immune suppressed. Now, the last statement I'll just make in the NIV area is, although the definition affords for the use of high-flow nasal cannula, we're not explicitly recommending the use of high-flow nasal cannula. In fact, high-flow nasal cannula is a pure research recommendation. We're saying we don't know if it should or should not be used in pediatric ARDS. There's really not enough evidence about it. Now, there might be some physiologic situations where it could be helpful if lung recruitment's not possible, but it's at this point purely in the research domain. Dr. Kamani, in the discussion of non-invasive ventilation and the framework that you've given in these new PALIC-2 guidelines, they're so helpful. Could we talk about the concept of patient self-induced lung injury? As you well know, this is especially noted in the adult world, um, patients receiving non-invasive ventilation. And I believe that we have seen it in our ICU as well. And it's subtle. Tell us, what is patient self-induced lung injury? Do you comment about it in the PALIC guidelines? What should we know about it? We do comment about patient self-inflicted lung injury in the PALIC guidelines. It was specifically a focus of the literature reviews in the non-invasive ventilation section, in the ventilation section, which is section three, the invasive ventilation section, and then in the monitoring section, which is in section six. So the concept sort of extends across multiple different domains. Now, unfortunately, in pediatrics, we don't have a lot of high quality evidence about it. Nevertheless, I think all of the panelists felt it important that this is an important physiologic concept that could 
could have real consequences across all of these domains in monitoring and non-invasive ventilation management and even in invasive mechanical ventilation management. Now, conceptually, the idea of patient self-inflicted lung injury is that the mechanisms that we think about for ventilator-induced lung injury can all be exacerbated when the patient has vigorous effort. And we classically think about ventilator-induced lung injury in a few areas, right? We think about the strain on the lung, which is previously people had sort of used the term volume trauma here. And I'm rephrasing it to strain to say this concept of the tidal volume based upon the size of the lung. So if I've got a patient that is pulling a high tidal volume, but has has impaired lung volumes, lung capacity, that's going to cause more harm for that patient than if a patient was pulling a high tidal volume but had a higher lung volume. So in ARDS, we see a reduction in the size of the lung or the reduction in functional residual capacity. So the risk of there being strain on the lung is much higher if they have a higher volume. Now, the patient can generate a very high volume, right? It doesn't have to be just what we're prescribing on the ventilator. If the patient is breathing spontaneously, in fact, maybe even on non-invasive ventilation, they may be pulling tidal volumes of 10, 12, 14 mLs per kilo and inducing strain on the lung. And that's one of the concepts of patient self-inflicted lung injury. And the adult data certainly supports that high tidal volume is a risk factor for this. The other is the stress on the lung, and this is thought of conceptually as the transpulmonary pressure. If a patient is paralyzed on the ventilator, then we are the only ones that are providing that positive pressure or the pressure to inflate the lung. But if the patient is breathing spontaneously, now they pull a negative pleural pressure, and the transpulmonary pressure, which is a reflection of the stress on the lung, may also be very, very high. And we don't measure that in our routine clinical practice, but certainly as you look at many of these patients on non-invasive ventilation, for example, we may see that they, in fact, do pull very large negative swings in their pleural pressure. So that extends not only on the non-invasive ventilation side, but it can happen even when a patient is invasively ventilated, and but breathing spontaneously on the ventilator. And so that's why one of the recommendations that came out of the monitoring section is that we should be really monitoring respiratory effort in some capacity to look at how much effort is this patient putting in. The gold standard would be esophageal manometry. We don't have that as available. It's not practical for routine use in most ICUs, but there are other means to do that, including just our eyes, right? Just to say, let's look at the level of tachypnea that that patient has or the level of work of breathing that that patient has. And at a minimum, we should be doing that for all patients, invasive or non-invasive ventilation. And then those that are invasively ventilated, there may be some other things that can be done, like occlusion maneuvers that can try to estimate that effort. But that it was a principal component of really three sections that relate to respiratory effort and the risk of P-Silly. Robbie, I got to say, that's one of the clearest distillations of P-Silly or patient self-inflicted lung injury that I've heard. It's a very subtle, but apparently real concept. You know, obviously, as you noted, that the ventilator-induced lung injury remains a threat as equally as so. What's new about how we should be monitoring the work of breathing for a patient who's receiving invasive mechanical ventilation? Thanks, Jeff. So on the invasive mechanical ventilation side, the concept of monitoring work of breathing is certainly important. There are more ways that have emerged, although many of these really do still fall into the research recommendations, things like the P.1 maneuver, the P occlusion maneuver, which can be done with expiratory holes in the ventilator. But those unfortunately are still falling in the research side and those need more validation. But certainly you can use your eyes as the first starting point with work of breathing. There have been new recommendations with respect to patients that are on more controlled ventilation 
and how we should be thinking about inspiratory pressure and tidal volume. And it reflects some of the concepts that I just brought up, which are related to the strain hypothesis. So if we start first with the tidal volume recommendations, our previous recommendations were we should be using physiologic tidal volumes of five to eight mLs per kilo, but that we should be titrating and we may need to use lower tidal volumes of three to six mLs per kilo in patients that have more severe injury. And this ties back to this hypothesis or this concept of the strain on the lung where you should be using patient-specific tidal volumes, that the patients with the more severe lung injury, the ones that have the largest reduction in lung compliance should be the ones that get the smaller tidal volumes. And those patients that have the more preserved lung compliance will be the ones that are allowed to get the slightly higher tidal volumes. And so our recommendations for tidal volume are that we should be using six to eight as a starting point, but that you really do need to pay attention to the compliance of the lung. And that relates to the plateau pressure, which I'll talk about here in a second, so that if those patients have poor lung compliance with potentially high plateau pressures or high driving pressures, then we should be reducing the tidal volume further to less than 6 mLs per kilo. Now, we do put a caution in there of going below 4 mLs per kilo, and the truth is from the observational data, there seems to be a little inflection point to where the mortality risk might go up a little bit when you get below 4 mLs per kilo, and there are some physiologic reasons to worry about this potentially, although, although the data is not very strong on that end. So that's why it's, it's simply just a, a warning to be cautious when you get to that lower end. But the other thing that ties the tidal volume recommendations together are, in fact, the new recommendations about inspiratory pressure limitation. And so the plateau pressure limit of 28 remains the same. That's what we put in the previous PALIC, allowing for a plateau pressure of up to 32 centimeters of water for patients with impaired chest wall compliance. Now, I do want to make a point here that this is the plateau pressure. This is not the peak pressure. And it's important to measure the plateau pressure. So to perform that inspiratory hold and see what the pressure is under static conditions, i.e. conditions of no flow, it's not necessarily the same as the peak inspiratory pressure. It can be higher or lower. It can be higher if patients have respiratory effort and are breathing. Then we may see that the plateau pressure is actually higher than the peak pressure, or it might be lower in circumstances of increased airway resistance, for example. So the plateau pressure limit of 28, and then concomitantly a driving pressure limit, where the driving pressure is the plateau pressure minus the PEEP. And this is, of course, a concept that's been embraced in adult critical care to limit the driving pressure. Our suggested limit is 15 centimeters of water based on a few observational studies in pediatrics. This limit is consistent with adult recommendations. So that's why we put those forward. And that ties together the concept of adjusting the tidal volume based upon the compliance of the lung. If you limit that driving pressure to 15, inherently the tidal volume is going to need to be lower for those patients with poorly compliant lungs. And it could be a little bit higher for those patients with more preserved lung compliance. The last thing on the invasive ventilation side is PEEP. And so now we have for the first time actually a moderate recommendation or a strong recommendation with moderate certainty of evidence. This is our only strong recommendation with moderate certainty of evidence. And that's based on using, at least as a starting point, the PEEP FiO2 table that is proposed by the ARDS network. And this is the low PEEP slash high FiO2 table because there have been several observational studies that have shown that patients that are managed at least in line with that table table have better outcomes in pediatric ARDS. And so we recommend starting with that table at least. And then you may adjust PEEP based upon other factors that you would look at. For example, looking at hemodynamic status, looking at oxygen delivery, looking at lung compliance. And then if there's a reason to diverge from the PEEP FiO2 table because of some of those other factors, that's appropriate. But as a starting point, beginning with the PEEP FiO2 table.
Can we go back to plateau pressure? As you well know, in the adult literature, the common mode of ventilation is a volume-limited mode, and indeed, most of the research studies are volume-limited, and so measuring the plateau pressure is easy. But of course, in pediatrics and pediatric critical care, many patients are often on a pressure-limited mode of ventilation. So talk to us about plateau pressure in the pediatric patient in the pressure-limited mode of ventilation and your thoughts on maybe perhaps some of the volume-limited modes of ventilation available to the pediatric practitioner. Thanks, Jeff. I'm glad you asked that question because I think it highlights sort of some common misconceptions about peak and plateau pressure and pressure-limited modes of ventilation. So remember, the plateau pressure is what the alveoli is seeing. It reflects the pressure in the alveoli at end inspiration, irrespective of flow. In a decelerating flow mode of ventilation, like let's say pressure control ventilation, right, then what we typically expect is that by the end of inspiration, that the pressure that's set as the peak pressure would reflect the plateau pressure as long as the flow has fully decelerated to zero. But if you look closely at most of our patients on pressure control modes of ventilation, sometimes that flow does not actually reach zero if the inspiratory time, for example, is too short or it doesn't reflect the time constant of that patient's lung. So it is still important to measure a plateau pressure in patients in pressure control ventilation. Let's say a passive patient, you may see that the plateau pressure is considerably low lower than the peak inspiratory pressure because flow has not fully decelerated to zero. And it means that the pressure that you dialed in as the peak pressure actually hasn't fully reached the alveoli because the time was not enough basically to reach the alveoli. If you have a slight inspiratory pause during pressure control ventilation and flow really is zero at the end, then what you should see in a passive patient is that the peak and the plateau pressure are very close to one another. But we often don't pay enough attention to that deceleration of flow to know does flow reach zero at the end of inspiration in a decelerating flow pattern with pressure control ventilation. Now, you can also measure this in active patients. And I think in active patients, this is even more important because in patients that are breathing spontaneously, they are pulling some of this pressure themselves, right, to fill their alveoli. So if you do an inspiratory hold, regardless of the mode of ventilation, pressure control or volume control or even pressure support, for example, if the patient has significant inspiratory effort, what you will see is that the plateau pressure is higher than the peak inspiratory pressure. That's because it reflects the effort that the patient has put into the system to pull that tidal volume. So you can measure a plateau pressure on volume control, on PRVC, on pressure control, and even on pressure support modes of ventilation. Now, some ventilators make it difficult to do it on pressure support, but most ventilators allow that. And it reflects what the alveoli is seeing at the end of inspiration, what that true alveolar pressure is. Dr. Ravi Kamani, I have to say this to you. Every time I listen to you, I learn something. And your ability to articulate these concepts in just the most memorable way is a real service. So not only are you an extraordinary researcher, and I have to tell you, I have you set to PubMed to make sure I see your latest publications, but your ability to teach is just, it's a real service to colleagues around the world to help us better understand these really complex concepts. So thank you so much for being with us today on Open Pediatrics Podcast. Thank you. Very, very kind, Jeff. And it was a pleasure to be here. This has been a production of Open Pediatrics. You can find the resources and journal articles referenced in this podcast in the description. We have more podcasts like this one available everywhere you get your podcasts. Visit openpediatrics.org for more information. 